Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing. When he, predicated, when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. If you want to see hope, look at the trees. Look at the trees and see them bare. Look at the trees and now see them budding, see them flowering, promising summer green. Spring is the bridge between winter and summer. Death is left behind and we approach the fullness of life. Spring is hope coming to life. Imagine if we had winter without the hope of summer. I can honestly think of few things more terrible. <laughs> I despise the cold. The only thing I like about winter is that there are no mosquitoes. Um, but winter is bearable with the hope of summer. I can even enjoy a bit of snow here and there with the promise that it will all melt away one day. 
Our experience of the seasons gives us a tangible analogy of the nature of the Christian life. Before Jesus Christ, both in the history of our world and in the history of your own personal life, we were locked in the dead of winter. But now that Christ has come, we have crossed the threshold into spring. And the Apostle Peter, here in 1 Peter, writes his first letter with that sort of anticipation. Now, when Peter is writing this letter, we're talking about 30 years later in his life from the time in which Christ was crucified and raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And so at this point, Peter is no longer an old man. I don't know if this is an accurate picture of him. It's from like the Renaissance period, but it seemed to capture kind of probably the age that he was at when he was writing this letter. So we're talking about the era about between 60 and 64 AD. And we have a sense that it's in that period, especially because of, of a couple things. One is that he gives an indication that he may be writing from Rome. Um, later on in 1 Peter 3.15, he references how he's writing from Babylon. Now, the tradition doesn't have any indication that he was literally in Babylon, you know, further to the east. But when we look at the book of Revelation, we see how often Babylon uh, is kind of alluding to the power of Rome. It's alluding to world's power. And so Rome is the center of the world's power at this point. And so it's thought that he's writing from Rome, and this is before he's been executed. And we know that during uh, the middle of the 60s AD, he was executed by the emperor Nero. So we're talking about the early 60s here in the first century AD. He's writing from Rome to the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which is modern-day Turkey. Um, before it became Turkey, people would refer to this as Asia Minor. So if you ever see Asia Minor, just interpret that Turkey. Um, and I've starred the cities there, so you can see it's, a, it's covering a vast area of Turkey. And the idea here is that in writing this letter, the one who is carrying this letter is going to visit each one of these cities carrying along the message that Peter has sent. It's a much more efficient way of writing a letter than writing one individually to each church. I mean, first of all, just thinking about the writing materials that they had, the labor it would have taken, and then just appreciating the fact that mail doesn't come overnight in the first century AD. It's a long, arduous journey to bring a message to these churches. Um, and it's indicated towards the end of 1 Peter that that messenger may have been Silas. Um, and Silas may have also been acting as scribe for Peter in writing this letter, a fancy word known as amanuensis. Um, it's basically just a scribe. Um, that's how uh, Silas may have been functioning. Um, it's, it's not uncommon for um, people in those times to use scribes in, in writing letters. So Peter's writing to these churches, and he addresses them as God's elect, exiles scattered throughout this region in modern-day Turkey. And when we hear that term, elect, 
for a lot of us, it's a foreign sort of thing. Like we, the only time we hear elect used in that kind of way is in political circumstances. We think about like the president-elect. Well, what does that mean, a president-elect? That means the one who has been chosen to be president, but he's kind of president and, and waiting in terms of you know, American politics. When we think about God's elect, what Peter is saying is those who have been chosen by God. And it's important for us to remember that anyone who comes to God has been someone who's been chosen and drawn to God. In John 6, Jesus tells us, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. That's a universal, orthodox Christian confession. That it is God who draws human beings to himself. We don't come to him by our own rational powers and goodness. Now, there is, there is a division here on, in terms of the question of, can you resist God drawing you to himself? Um, and we won't get into that because I don't think that's really what Peter's concern here is. He's not concerned about whether people can resist God's drawing or not. What he's concerned with is what is the purpose for which God has drawn these people unto himself. And when we look here at verse 2, he says that these elect are those who have been chosen. And then you go down another line further. It's, it's tough because he introduces all these little clauses, these mini sentences and, and commas, so it can be difficult to track. But if you pay attention, you can see that these are those who have been chosen to be obedient. They've been chosen to be, to be obedient. And that this has been God's plan of all along, by his fore, foreknowledge, that this was the purpose for which they have been chosen, in order to be obedient. And we see how this aligns elsewhere in, in the testimony of Scripture, in Paul's letters. In Romans 8.29, Paul says, For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So predestined to be conformed. That's basically the same thing as being chosen to be obedient. If you're being conformed to Christ, you are being obedient to Christ. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So those who believe in Christ who have been drawn to God by the power of God, are those who have been chosen to be obedient. They've been predestined to be conformed. They've been created for good works. Lots of action here. Not only has God saved you to be forgiven of your your sins, but he's, He's saved you in order for this purpose that you might be obedient, that you might become the people that He's called you to be. Now, when we hear all that, sometimes we can feel overwhelmed, like, well, gee, does that mean I need to shape up in order to you know, get myself into God's kingdom? Um, but in truth, that's actually putting the cart before the horse because we're not dragging ourselves into the kingdom of God. We are carried into the kingdom of God by Christ Jesus, and he brings us along. And, in, and Peter makes this pretty clear in verse 2. Um, 
he seasons all this talk about how we've been chosen to be obedient by noting that this is by God's power. In verse 2, he says, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So it's not by our own powers of cleansing ourselves. It's by the sanctification of the Spirit that we become obedient. And also the fact that we are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. We are sprinkled with his blood. Now, this idea of being sprinkled with blood is an echo of the Old Covenant, in which the people of God were sprinkled with blood as they made their covenant with God and that they would be obedient to him. We see this in Exodus 24, verses 7 through 8. Now, of course, if you read the Old Testament, you find out that the Israelites did not keep up their end of the bargain. And they're no exception. None of us would have kept up the end of that bargain. The good news is that Christ has kept up his end of the bargain when he came. He was obedient unto death. And so he establishes a new covenant. And so the writer of Hebrews says, this is what has come to pass by a sacrifice for our sakes. In Hebrews 9, verses 13 through 15, he says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they're just outwardly clean. It's just a superficial sort of cleanliness. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Now notice here how even in this, what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, there's an action orientation here, how we've been cleansed in order to serve God, to serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised internal, eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And so by that last verse there, it's made utterly clear though that it's not by our service that we gain this inheritance. We gain this inheritance because of what Christ offered up through his death on the cross, offering up his life completely unto God. He, he is the one who is our ransom. And so we come to share in his inheritance. We're those people who have been chosen, saved, and redeemed. And so, as a consequence, Peter can say that we ought to have grace and peace and abundance. Those things properly belong to us. If you belong to Christ... You are covered by his grace. And if you are covered by his grace, if you no longer have to worry about being condemned and punished, if you no longer have to be feeling as though you are a slave to sin, but you're in fact free, then you're at peace. You're at peace with yourself. You can be at peace with God. And you can be at peace with your brothers and sisters, with all of humanity because of the great grace that you've received in Christ. Peter shifts then, in light of all this, to a declaration of praise for the salvation that God has made possible. And so in verse 3, he declares, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when Peter writes this, what he's doing is taking up a chorus that's all across the pages of Scripture. When we look at the Old Testament, 
we see in Exodus 18.10 that Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, says, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. And Psalm 66, Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. And Psalm 124, Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. And then you get to the book of Daniel, and Nebuchadnezzar had thrown Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into a furnace to burn them up. And when God delivered them, Nebuchadnezzar says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. Notice how again and again this praise is offered in light of the salvation that God has wrought. And we see this continued into the New Testament. Zechariah and Luke 1.68 says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. And then Paul in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians 1 says pretty much the same thing as Peter does here. And he just has slightly different endings. The, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is all very instructive for us. If you're a person that feels like, well, I don't really, you know, I know I'm supposed to worship God, I'm supposed to praise God, I don't really know how, how to go about that, look at Scripture. Peter's content to follow in the pattern. You don't have to create something out of thin air. Take up the praise of the Scriptures. Praise God for the ways in which He has delivered your life. You can speak of it generally, just the forgiveness, but you each have your own particular story in which you've seen God intervene. Praise Him for that. Praise God for what He's done. Now, you know, some people that you know, are paying close attention to the wording here might think that it sounds strange to say that Jesus Christ has a God. So it says, praise to be, be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you think that's odd because, I mean, don't we confess that Jesus is God? He's the Son of God. Um, and and it's, it's true. At first reading, it can kind of strike us as odd. But we have to remember this, that Jesus is not only fully God, he is fully man. He's not half man. He's not kind of pretend man. He is fully man. And so it is appropriate, when, in reference to Jesus' humanity, to speak of him as having a God, just as all of us have the one true God as our God. But we also note here that there is there's something more to Jesus here than just your average human being because he's called the Lord. And when we go later on to first, in 1 first Peter, to 1 Peter 3.22, Peter talks about how Jesus has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels' authorities and powers in submission to him. Whoa. <laughs> Who among us could make that sort of claim? Those are the, that's the sort of authority and power that belongs to God alone. And yet we see Jesus taking it. It belongs, it belongs to him. And I've referred again and again to Daniel 7. It's a perfect match with what we see in Daniel 7 with the authority that the Son of Man receives. And so, no conflict here. Um, the cause of this praise that, that Peter's offering here is made explicit in the next verse 
It says, In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. There's something very striking here about this idea of of the new birth that we have in Jesus Christ. And we can imagine here, you know, Peter did not write the Gospel of John, but he certainly shared in the experiences of the Apostle John, because both of them were disciples. So we can imagine him kind of referring back to the teachings of Christ that he received. And we see in John 3, verses 5 through 7, Jesus sharing this teaching with the Pharisee Nicodemus. Jesus tells Nicodemus, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. This is the purpose for which Christ has come. He has come so that we might be born again, so that we might become a new humanity so that we might become God's chosen people. And this is made possible by Christ's death and resurrection. He puts to death all that is sinful within us, the power of sin, nails that to the cross, and in being raised to new life, he makes it possible that we might share in that new life so that we can be born anew. And so we have a living hope in him. A hope that's unlike any other hope because it survives, it persists, it always stands before us. It's not a hope that is going to pass away. And for the the apostles, when they're confessing this, this is no mere theory of theirs. As though, you know, well, we think this, this, this could be possible. No, they've seen Jesus raised from the dead. And so because they've seen Jesus raised from the dead, they know that their hope is really, truly alive. The hope that that will happen for us as well. And so because Jesus lives, we have a share in his inheritance. And the nature of this inheritance is heavenly. Um, It's an inheritance that we gain through Christ. In Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, Paul says, But when the kindness and love of of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs by having the hope of eternal life. So eternal life is part of our heavenly inheritance. And it's something that's that's secure for us. It's something that none of the powers in this world can touch. We can almost imagine, it's, it's, it's like it's being kept in a heavenly storage unit. Um... In Colossians 1, verses 4 through 5, Paul writes, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. 
so secure for us. And that's what we ought to be pursuing. Remember, Jesus said, don't store up your treasures here on earth because they're going to crumble. They're going to fade away. Store up your treasures in heaven. But it's important to remember here that we gain those treasures not at the moment that we, we die. It's not like we go up to the heavenly storage unit and then open it up and it's like, okay, I, I take it now. No. We gain this reward when everyone else gains this reward on the day of Christ's return. In 2 Timothy, verse, 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, Paul says this, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And you wonder, okay, what is that day? Is he talking about the day that, he's, that Paul dies? No, he's not talking about that, because then we read, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is referring to the day of Christ's return. And, and, and Peter indicates this in verse 5. He says, Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So this is our, our hope of our inheritance is secure in heaven. And it will come to us when Christ returns. And we will all receive it in full. Now, when we hear that those who have faith are shielded, we might be tempted to think that this means that those who have faith shouldn't expect any trouble. But as Peter continues further, he makes it clear that that's not the case at all. In verse 6, rather, he says, In all this you greatly rejoice. So thinking about the salvation, this heavenly inheritance we have. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. We rejoice even though we have grief in all kinds of trials. Now, I really appreciate the way that Peter describes this reality here. And say not just some particular trials, like we can think of you know, very pointed sorts of trials that the Christian might face for you know, preaching the gospel, doing all kinds of things, you know, and, and striving to be faithful to Christ. Those certainly are included. But he says, grief in all kinds of trials. We have reason to rejoice in all kinds of trials, in all the circumstances of life, because we are not, we are not removed from those things. We all suffer disease. We, we're not exempted from that. But we do have reason to rejoice. But, but still, we wonder, well, why? why? Why do we have to go through all of that? Why do I have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials? Peter says in verse 7, he says, These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter says that these things come in order to prove the genuineness of our faith, and that glory is the result of that. Now, that's the reality. You know, when we're going through these trials, 
it's really tough for us to kind of wrap our minds around that. You know, as your pastor, you know, when, you, you know, when you're experiencing death or tragedy in your life, I, that's probably not going to be the first verse I'm going to go to because you're not going to be ready to receive it. But I want you to remember it because it will be a comfort to you when you face these kind of trials. You see, the thing is, is that proven faith is better than just claiming to have faith. Faith is only valuable when it's actually able to stand the test. And I think we can kind of understand this when we think about maybe some practical things in life. You know, in Rhode Island, we've got all kinds of construction projects always going on. Sometimes they build a bridge and they shut down a road. You can't go over the bridge. Now imagine that they take this bridge, completely rebuild it. It's all shiny and new. And they say, this is the strongest bridge made by expert engineers. It will last for 100 years, let's say. And then you say, okay, great. Now I'm ready to drive my car across. And they're like, wait, no, no, we're not going to let you do that. It is the strongest bridge, but we're not going to let you drive across the bridge. Well, I mean, most of us, I think, would would tend to think, well, it must not actually be the strongest bridge, because if it was, then you'd let us drive across it. And in fact, the success of the project is only revealed when people are able to drive across the bridge and has actually been able to be put into use. The same is true of the Christian faith. Our faith in God, our trust in God is only revealed to have anything solid to it when it is able to endure trials. We need to be able to exercise virtue under fire. It's one thing for a person to claim to be courageous. It's another to prove that courage when facing down great danger. I think back to history. Think back to World War II when the whole world was under siege by the Nazis and Hitler was taking over all of Europe and the only free country really that could make any sort of stand was Great Britain. And it would have been very easy for them to capitulate at that time. But Winston Churchill refused to let his people do that. And so he gave this famous speech. And which he says, Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. But if we fail then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. And isn't it so that when we think about British history, we look back at that moment in which they stood against the Nazis. That we do see that as truly their finest hour. More great than, you know, the British Empire spread across, you know, 
itself across the world, conquered many foes. They could po you could point at many things, but this, this was their finest hour. But it entail entailed great suffering, unimaginable suffering. A few months after the London Blitz followed in which Homes were destroyed by Nazi bombs. Children are, were left parentless. It's tough to, for us to wrap our minds around such realities. It's tough to wrap our minds around the disasters that we encounter in our own lives. Christ has comprehended all these things because he has entered into the tragedy of this world. And he's gone to the cross but in the midst of tragedy, God can bring forth glory. He brings forth glory as we continue to trust in Him and exercise faith in Him. Paul says this in Romans 8, 18 and 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You see, we can, we can persevere, we can have faith because we have this living hope. If we did not have that living hope, if we only had the prospects of being crushed by this world, then I mean, what use is there in exercising faith? You might as well just curl up in a ball. There's nothing to rejoice about. But because we have this hope, we can know that as we persevere, that there will be glory. Just as we've seen in the case of Great Britain, as they persevered on the underside of that great trial was their greatest moment of glory. Suffering both reveals the genuineness of our faith. And it also has a way of, of shaping and hardening it and, and making it more strong and making us into the sort of people that God has called us to be. But it's not just suffering by itself. Because suffering by itself has crushed many people in this world. It's not as though just suffer and you know, you'll become a better person or something. No. God is able to use the trials that we face as tools. You think about someone who's working in an ironworks. They have the fire. They have the hammer. Now with fire and hammer, you could do a whole lot of damage. But in the hands of God, He's able to work everything out for our good. Because again, our horizon is not limited by our time in the present age here. Our horizon extends into eternity. And so God is able to bring forth good. God's desire is to prove us. And Proverbs 17.3, Solomon writes, The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. The Lord tests it. He proves it. He makes, he makes it true unto, him, unto Himself. Will, will we sink or, or will we rise? 
And we see, especially in the age of Christ in which we live, God is able to use this for our sanctification, for our growth. In Hebrews 12, 11, the writer says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Don't you love, I I love kind of how this is alluding to kind of like athletics, this idea of being trained by it, because if any of you have been involved in athletics, the conditioning is the worst part. The game is the best part. The conditioning is the worst part. When the coach is making you run suicides, my coach used to make us run up a hill carrying each other on on our backs and stuff. Worst part. But it has its reward. In James 1, 2 through 4, very much like Peter here talking about rejoicing. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So Peter says we can have cause to rejoice because of this living hope that is before us. And James here says that we can rejoice in the trial because we know that it is working us towards maturity so that we're not lacking in anything. Very often, you know, we can go forward in this life and think, like, I'm all set. Like, I've got a handle on things. Until a crisis strikes. And then you see all your weak points. And that's God, God's very content to do that with us, to show us our weak points. Why? Why is he content to do that? Well, two things. I think so that we would press in, so that we would seek to grow, so that we would not be self-satisfied in our righteousness, in our gains. And we'd appreciate that it's not us, it is him. Because that's what it reminds us of. When we see all our weak spots, we are reminded of our utter need for grace. And that we can't possibly do this by our own powers. Now we can call this kind of perseverance, you know, plodding forward faith because we are called to persevere without having seen Jesus, without having seen Him with our own eyes. He's revealed Himself. We have reason to trust and believe in Him, and yet we do not see Him. And and Peter picks up on this, this fact that though we don't see Him, yet we believe, yet we move forward. And Jesus said that those among us, which is the vast majority... Who believe in him and yet having not seen him are blessed. He says in John 20, 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. God calls Jesus calls you blessed, but you have believed, and yet you have not seen him face to face. I'm not sure I understand. Mm, I know. <laughs> See, the truth of Scripture can't reach Syria, I guess. I don't know. Um, Siri can go to Sermon Circle afterwards. 
Um, so when, when Peter says that we are shielded by God, we shouldn't think of that as, as meaning that we are shielded from going through trials, shielded from going through suffering. We should understand it as meaning that we are preserved through the trials, through the suffering. Our faith won't be destroyed. We will be vindicated in the end because we will receive the end result of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. We can rejoice in the midst of the trial because our living hope has been revealed. God has revealed how He will save us in Jesus Christ. Peter says that the prophets longed to see this, looking at verses 10 through 12. The prophets longed to see this. It's like they kind of like tried squinting into the future. God had inspired them to write everything that would anticipate the coming of Christ, but they still could not see it fully, clearly themselves. And we can see this, this kind of squinting, this straining, this truth of, what sh- of that which is to come and yet has not been fully revealed as we look at prophecies like Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15, which is again like one of those prophecies that you felt you feel could have appeared in the New Testament. To see my servant will act wisely, referring to the suffering servant, this coming Messiah, Jesus. See my servant will act wise, wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so defigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Can't you just read that and you're just like, wow. Like, God revealed this hundreds of years before, and Christ has completely fulfilled it. Jesus himself says to his disciples, Matthew 13, Matthew 13 17, he says, For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And then you jump again to the epistle to the Hebrews. And Hebrews 11 is a great chapter going, it's a great chapter about faith, about all these Old Testament saints who exercised faith. But then it ends by saying, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us, they would be made perfect. So they longed to see this promise of Christ, but what the writer here is saying is that they did not receive it because God had us in mind. God was thinking of you. He wanted us to be included in this promise, to be included among His elect, those who have been chosen. And so this is why we wait even now. The reason why Christ has not come back yet is because there's more people who have yet to receive Him and who will receive Him. God wants to show as much mercy and grace as possible, and so He is patient with us. What this reminds us of is that the Gospel 
this good news of, of salvation in Jesus Christ, this good news that He is the King of the universe and that He is bringing this new birth, that, that this news is, is something that's a mystery that has been revealed. And it's even a mystery that even while being revealed, it can't even be completely comprehended because it supersedes all human wisdom and scheming and planning. We wouldn't have thought of this. It's a mystery that's been revealed. And so, by its very nature, it's something that must be proclaimed. We can't just assume that, oh, people will reason to this. By our own human powers, we can't reason ourselves to Christ. Especially if you've never heard the name of Christ. This is such a mystery that Peter says that in verse 12 that even angels long to look into these things. Now isn't that something? You would think like maybe the angels would have had insider knowledge. I mean, they're in heaven with God. Maybe they would have understood everything that was going to be happening with Jesus. But Peter says no. They longed to look into these things. And they didn't, they didn't see it until it's been revealed and it's being revealed through the church today. Paul says the very same thing in, in Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 11. He says, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, not God and the angels, just hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities. And when we see rulers and authorities, like immediately, okay, a Caesar, the president, the prime minister. But notice here, not, not earthly authorities, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, there's a lot that we don't know about the heavenly realms. But God has appointed rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. They're not... They aren't gods. They're not God. But God has appointed these spiritual beings as rulers and authorities. And then we also know that there's a whole flip side of a rebellion against God with the satanic powers. According to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is, God, God is unveiling this to all of reality. Spiritual beings and human beings included. The bare branches are budding. The blossoms are forming. The cold darkness is giving way to warm summer evenings. The Christian can live with just that kind of anticipation when it comes to the condition of this world. It's bad. It's very bad. But it will give way when Christ returns. There's striking glory as we see flowers appear where branches just seem to hang lifeless. It's just kind of gray and drab. All of a sudden there's a flower there. This is the glory of faith. It's made all the more glorious because of what it overcomes. It's not just green upon green. I mean, flowers that you get later in the season when you know everything's green, those are nice. There's a special glory 
when it just seems to like, almost come out of nowhere. This is what our faith in Christ is like. It's life in the face of death. Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ now living within you and me where sin and death once reigned. We've been given new birth into a living hope. Through the sanctifying Spirit, by the power of God who shields us, we will stand. We will stand. We will persevere in all kinds of trials. Our faith will be tested by fire. But by God, this will be our finest hour. Let us pray. Dear Father, with Peter, we praise you that you have given us a living hope, a hope of new birth in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you that because of this hope, we can rejoice in the trials that we face in this world, Father. Father, thank you for the honesty of your word, for the honesty of Scripture that doesn't say, because we believe and have faith in you, we're not going to deal with tough things. We know that we will deal with tough things, Father. We have seen the suffering that Christ endured. But we've also seen how he has overcome. And so, Father, we pray that by this mystery that you've revealed in Jesus Christ, this mystery of how he became king of kings by going to the cross and overcoming it and being raised from the dead, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would forge it through the trials that we face today. That you would be glorified as we stand firm. That as the people around us look at us and they're like, why aren't these people folding up? Why aren't they despairing? That you would be glorified, Father, because the only explanation could be Jesus Christ. Father, give us that strength so that we may testify to Jesus Christ in all circumstances. And so that our neighbors, Father, our family members, our friends, so that they may come to believe, so that they may have this new birth, so that they might have this living hope as we persevere through the trials of this world. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon that I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through 1 and 2 Peter. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.